Welcome back to Superheroes of Science. Joining us today, we have Matt Casson, Associate Professor of Mycology and Plant Pathology, and Brian Lovett, who is a postdoc um, and a my mycologist and entomologist, and both of them are at West Virginia University. So how'd I do, guys? Did I, am I close? Perfect. <laughs> Sounded good to me. Well, I just want to start with, I've heard of plant pathology and entomology, but I don't know about mycology. So I think a fair question to begin with, what's mycology? Well, what's all three? Do all three. All three yeah, yeah. Because we've heard of that. I mean, we've heard of two out of three, but people might not know what a plant pathologist is. Sorry. Okay. Yes. So all three. Let's... Ryan, I'll let you take the mycology and entomology side. Okay. Uh, so mycology is the study of fungi. So this will include mushrooms. Uh, but it will also include fungi that uh, grow as hypha underground or sort of not visible to the human eye right away. Um, and uh, entomology is a study of insects. So any creepy crawly that has three legs or six legs, three pairs of legs. And plant pathology is kind of like a, um, it's a specialized subfield of, of mycology and, and microbiology that that involves microbes that infect and cause disease on plants. Um, and you may be familiar with, you know, molds that grow in your garden um, or scabs that grow in your apple. Um, there's a lot of plant pathogens all around us causing, you know, losses and yield on a lot of important agronomic crops. Oh, well, that makes sense. I, I hadn't also not heard of the mycology. And so I was glad to have that explanation. I didn't know that someone could have a focus area, uh, I guess I never thought about, of, of just fungi. Right. It's, in fact, we have, a whole, we have a whole society um, devoted to that, the Mycological Society of America, which is an, you know, a, a really um, historic society that, that really um, brings together all the, the people working on contemporary issues and um, in and around fungi. It's funny that you say just fungi because fungi are everywhere and they're doing essentially everything. So a world without fungi is is no world. What do you mean by doing everything? What's uh, important so, about this? You both study it. What's important about it? I mean, is that the stuff that grows in my bread? I mean, I, I don't know. Matt, you want to take that one? Yeah. <laughs> so the things that grow on your, you know, your your oranges you leave too long on the counter and your breads. Um, a lot of these uh, are fungi, and um, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, they're opportunists that take advantage of, uh, of substrates. Um, similar in our back, uh, back lots of our house where we have, you know, coarse woody debris or you know, branches from our oak tree that we, we had cut off last year, you'll find fungi degrading those as well. So they serve, serve really important functions um, in our natural systems by degrading complex substrates and turning them into kind of simple sugars and turning them into organic matter that can be used by other things. And uh, as you mentioned, fungi don't just break things down, they also create things. So pretty much everything that you find tasty, bread, cheese, chocolate, uh, you can find fungi responsible for making it tasty. Um, and they also are the source for antibiotics. So um, the first antibiotic that was sort of widely used, penicillin, that was produced by a fungus that uh, supposedly flew in through the window. So um, they're doing a lot for us, um, even if we don't realize 
uh, where they are or what they're doing. Um, they're really important for us and, and the ecosystem staying healthy and also having delicious food. And one, one last point I'll add here is that below the surface, below the soil or, or below our feet, there are a number of fungi that are forming intimate beneficial relationships with plants. And we call these fungi mycorrhizal fungi. Um, they form intimate relationships with the roots of plants and a, a large portion of land plants rely on these fungi to help um, increase surface area and help acquire essential nutrients that are maybe not as accessible to them as plants alone, but through their partnership with fungi, they gain direct access to these limited nutrients. And mycorrhizal just means fungus root in Latin. Oh. It's so uh, so the ones with the beneficial and like anything with chocolate's beneficial. Because uh, we've taught that we as a like people like myself teaching environmental side, environmental side, we've always taught, oh yeah, if I'm it's responsible, it's it's one of the things that uh, is a decomposer and it helps the environment but helps in breaking things down. It, it's it, we kind of throw it in that class, but we the beneficial side, the other benefits are often often things that we uh, forget to highlight. Embarrassingly so, but um, and so when you, it sounds like oftentimes there are uh, symbiotic relationships then that they have. That that's what you're mentioning with the plants then, and is that how we get the the chocolate? The where how does that help chocolate? Is it so, a relationship with the plants and so the production with with chocolate or um uh another another really good example is um. Uh, beer and wine. Uh, that's essentially uh, a process of breaking down and that that product that it's producing is sort of a controlled decay almost. And if you keep the conditions just so, then fungi that are all over the place will uh, be really happy and they'll um, be uh, they'll be able to carry out those processes in in the conditions that they like. So, if you're trying to create bread, then you'll keep it on your counter and you'll add the right ingredients and you'll wait for a certain amount of time and those microbes will multiply. If you're fermenting, you'll add uh, the different ingredients for beer and then the microbes that like to eat those ingredients, if you keep it at the right temperature and with the right conditions, then they'll grow mm -hmm. and they'll eventually produce the um, alcohol and other, other things that we like. So that process of breaking down, if we're controlling it, uh, it's, it's really uh, a decay. So it's it's yeah. quite similar to the the orange that you leave out that will will grow mold that that Matt mentioned. Except if we're controlling it and if we're paying attention to that process, we can stop it when it's tasty before it becomes uh, gross. And and one of the other things I think I'll just point out here because I think it's helpful to the listeners and it's helpful for just you know everyone being on the same page is that when we talk about symbiosis broadly, we're talking about like a close relationship, long term relationship between unrelated organisms. And that encompasses both beneficial uh, symbioses, uh, which we call mutualisms, and detrimental um, relationships that we call might call parasitism. Um, so there are, are situations where when you have this symbiosis, one of those organisms benefits and one does not. And then you have other relationships where both benefit. Um, so in, in case of the, the zombie cicadas that which we'll get to today, we'll be talking about kind of a parasitic relationship where the fungus is, you know, enjoying it, but maybe the cicada uh, enjoys it less. 
really good example is uh, mushrooms. If you if you go foraging for mushrooms, you go looking for mushrooms. Uh, one of the things that mycologists can use is the trees that are around. And if you find a certain tree, you're much more likely to find uh, certain types of fungi. And that's because of these relationships that they form with the plants. So underground, they like to form relationships with that tree. And that's why when they form that mushroom, you'll likely see them around that tree. Um, so that's a really good example of how uh, the two can have a relationship and then we can actually see it uh, at the right time of year. So how is that for, uh, how is that, that when you say they form underground, is it they're um, working on the roots of the tree and then they come through the soil? Is that what we're seeing with that? Yeah, so for a lot of them, um, the plants, the, the major innovation, the reason why plants are so uh, successful is because they can take sunlight and they can turn it into sugar. Yeah. So sugar, you know, just, just like we love sugar, uh, pretty much all organisms love sugar. And that's something that's really hard to come by underground. So fungi will essentially barter with plants for sugar. So they'll go and they'll find other nutrients that the plants want underground. Uh, typically nitrogen is, is something that fungi are really good at getting that, that plants need. And then they'll trade um, for sugar. Um, and that sort of relationship uh, is really not that different from the relationship that you have with somebody at the store, um, except uh, this is uh, passing back and forth chemicals instead of money and, and food. Mm -hmm. That is an awesome explanation. I've never heard that explained before, but it makes a lot of sense to me. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, that's that, that was the first two. And it's, I'm thinking of uh, all these, I'm thinking of all these standards, school standards. I'm like, oh, this is going to fit here. And, it, and so I'm like, oh, this is awesome that you're explaining this. And we appreciate that. Absolutely. And so let's, I, I guess, progress uh, beyond the plants into the uh, actual um, uh, insects. Oh, yeah. The, one of you also specializes in entomology. <laughs> and so, and I assume that's how uh, the, the two of you ended up collaborating with the uh, fungi overlap. Yeah. And um, how, well, I guess what's the background? What in the world is going on with these zombie cicada things that I'm hearing about? <laughs> Just now starting to hear about them. And uh, I'm like, I, I have what? Yeah, Matt, I just, do you want to, you want to, you want to take this, or do you want me to explain insect pathogenic fungi uh, initially? Why don't you explain insect pathogenic fungi, um, okay. like as an overview, and then we can go into the mesospora. And I'm gonna um, step away for one second. You got it. Um, so uh, insects are highly diverse, and they're all over the place. Um, they play a lot of interesting roles in the ecosystem as well. Um, and uh, insects, because there are so many of them, uh, they will fall to the ground and be degraded by fungi. So there are a lot of fungi that will sort of take advantage of, of dead insects and things, and it's part of cycling the nutrients. One of the things that fungi do for us is allow us to live in a world where we aren't surrounded by poop and dead things. Um, and some insects are, or some fungi don't wait for the insects to die to take advantage of that nutrients. Um, and these are insects that we call uh, uh, insect pathogens or entomopathogens. Uh, so there's a little bit more uh, Latin that we throw in there to confuse people. Um, and, and these fungi, um, they, have a they have a really interesting ability to uh, land on the outside of an insect and burrow their way inside. And once these fungi make it into the blood of the insect, they can then take advantage of all the sugars and all the nutrients that are in the blood of the insects 
to multiply until they kill the insect. Um, so that's the typical way that, that fungi will uh, kill insects. And there are many, many different fungi that have evolved this ability. Um, so ones that I, that I worked on, the ones that I did my PhD on, um, they were um, what we would call molds. So they grow without producing that uh, fruiting body. Uh, so these are uh, insect pathogenic fungi, which we can work with in the lab really easily. We could grow them up. I could take a cage of mosquitoes. I could expose them to this fungus. And 10 days later, I would have a bunch of dead mosquitoes. And a couple days after that, they would be covered in spores ready to infect the next mosquito. Oh, wow. um, that's great because we can ask a lot of really interesting questions about how did these fungi, fungi learn how to kill these insects? How did they evolve these abilities? And because we can work with them in the lab, I can, you know, uh, I can do really fine experiments. Like I can apply just 10 spores to a mosquito and see what happens. Um, but there are a lot of these fungi, which are, you know, arguably more interesting. Uh, that we can't work with in the lab. Uh, and that's because the relationship with insects has become so specialized that you have to have the insect to be able to grow them. You can't grow them on uh, some sort of artificial medium. So we'll make a uh, potato uh, dextrose auger, which is this sort of like jello, which has starch in it. Um, and we can grow insects or we can grow fungi up in the lab on that medium, but there are some fungi that do not cooperate with that kind of artificial growth. Um, and they, they have evolved to very, very specifically kill their insect of choice. So a great example are these zombie cicadas uh, that we work on in our lab, which need the cicada to uh, survive. And because of the lifestyle of cicadas, which involves uh, anywhere from four to 17 years of waiting underground, uh, you can't really work with them in the lab. So if you can't have the cicadas in the lab, you can't have the fungus in the lab. So if we want to do any experiments or ask any questions about this uh, pathogen, we have to go and collect them from the wild and then work with natural specimens in whatever condition we find them in. So it makes asking questions a little bit more challenging, but because of this really high specialization that they have to their cicada host, they can do some really interesting things to the cicada. So uh, the example that I gave that kills mosquitoes that we can work with in the lab, uh, it uh, will kill the mosquitoes and we can sort of follow the progression of that disease, but it doesn't do anything super, super interesting to them. With the zombie cicadas, because it knows the cicada inside and out, literally, uh, it can manipulate the behavior of the cicada to benefit the fungus, which is something that Matt knows a lot more about than I do. Uh, and then also, uh, instead of just growing inside of the cicada and killing it, it actually will produce uh, what we call a fruiting body, which is essentially a mushroom on the back of the cicada to spread spores. Now, the reason why we're, we're really interested in this and, and the reason why they're called zombies is because while this is happening, the cicada is still alive. So you have a cicada, which is still alive. The back half of the cicada falls off. And then a mushroom grows where the, the abdomen of the cicada once was. And then while that cicada is still alive and moving around, that mushroom will be dropping spores uh, and infecting other cicadas. So at, at, at that moment, the cicada is no longer doing things for itself or acting like a cicada. It's essentially become a vehicle to infect other cicadas for the mushroom. 
So um, that is is you know by definition what is what a zombie is. It's something that is is acting for the pathogen and, and no longer for itself. Um, so it's a really interesting system, and it's a it's a really complicated lifestyle. But uh, it's slow going to understand how it works uh, because of the difficulties that I mentioned with with culturing them and having to find natural specimens. So we find ourselves having a lot of road trips uh, to go and find these cicadas that have emerged and then pick them up until we find the ones that have that mushroom on the on on their body. Oh. Yeah, and I think um, one of the you know something to think about is we we compare this in a recent paper to kind of the rabies virus where it uses the host um, it keeps the host alive to kind of uh, transmit um, uh, itself and propagate itself. Um, and you know, in a sense, like you wouldn't, if you were studying rabies, you would hate to have to stockpile raccoons in your lab with a rabies virus. But that's essentially what we're doing. We're collecting a bunch of infected cicadas and just stockpiling them, like hundreds and hundreds in, in freezers and refrigerators um, while we study the chemicals they're producing, the spores they're producing, and trying to understand these complicated interactions between the host and the parasite. Um, one thing I'll, I'll add to this is that you know, this is not the only example of, of, of basically a zombie, a zombie fungus. Um, there are other close relatives to this fungus um, that also manipulate their hosts in ways that are similar to the cicadas. Um, and they occur in flies and in true bugs and in um, and all kinds of insects. Uh, but they're really largely undersampled or understudied for reasons that Brian explained earlier. It's that you know, when you're working on a, a fungus that only grows on its host and you can only find it, you know, once every 17 years or occasionally in location X, you know, in odd years or something like that, makes it a real challenge to get those specimens in the lab. But we've it, kind of carved out a niche of, uh, of doing that. And once every 17 years, and that's because the life cycle of cicada itself? Yeah, that's a natural um, property of, of how uh, periodical, some periodical cicadas uh, live their lives. So some will go every 13 years, some will go every 17 years, and um, how they're how they're doing that is not very well understood. But uh, essentially, we we think that they're counting uh, the sap cycles in the trees. So when the trees lose their leaves, they'll send the sap down to the roots to hang out until things warm up again. Um, over the winter and cicadas, which are feeding on the roots of those trees, can sort of count how many times that happens. Um, how they're counting, you know, they don't have enough fingers to count to 17. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's still a mystery, but, uh, but that's a part of their lifestyle, which uh, this fungus uh, has somehow managed to uh, deal with. Has the fungus, have we known about this before this year? And do we expect it to continue in following years or only in the next 17? Um, I, I can take this. Um, so this, the Mesospora, the cicada fungus, was first described back in the 1870s. Um, and so it's been known since that time. And um, there was some follow-up studies on it in the 1960s and 70s where um, this one researcher basically described the diversity of Mesospora species. So we know there's at least a dozen or so closely related species that infect some you know, two dozen or more cicada species worldwide. But as luck would have it, a, a large number of them occur here in North America. Um, so we're able to study them well. Um, 
we first really encountered them in 2016. So we had a, an emergence, a localized emergence of cicadas in, in Morgantown, West Virginia. And when they emerge, if you've never witnessed a periodical cicada emergence, we're talking about tens of billions with a B um, coming what? out all at once within a two week period. So the density could be millions per acre. Um, and they come out in mass and they all emerge within the two weeks, they mate and then they die. So even though they've lived for 17 years, the, the last six of their week, uh, six weeks of their life is spent as an adult mating. Um, and, and that's really where the fungus has, has learned to make itself present and, and manipulate the behaviors of these individuals to maximize spore dispersal. And the fungus, the fungus really has two major stages of its life cycle. So one is as what we call a resting spore, which is when it waits in the soil for the cicadas to emerge. Um, so when that cicada digs up to the surface of the soil and, and becomes an adult, that's when it can run into these resting spores and that will start the next phase, which is the conidial infection, which is, that's just the name that we call spores in, in this group. Um, and, and for that, uh, that's when it produces that mushroom, uh, and that's when it actually enlists the cicada to uh, infect other cicadas. Um, and we know that that, uh, that lifestyle is not just a coincidence, that it's an actual manipulation by the cicada, and mm -hmm. one of, or by the fungus. And one of the ways that we know that is because um, when male cicadas are infected, uh, they flick their wings. And wing flicking is how female cicadas signal that they're interested in mating. So when a male cicada is flicking its wings, it's tricking healthy male cicadas into thinking that it's a female cicada and trying to mate with it. And when that occurs, they can't mate with the cicada and instead they pick up a heavy dose of canidia. And when they get infected, they'll produce resting spores to infect, infect the next generation. So these are the two phases of the lifestyle. And in the middle, there's clear evidence that the fungus is pulling the behavioral strings of the cicada. Is that through like a, the chemical secretion where it's like mind control? I mean, is uh, how, how that's happening is uh, not clear. We, we don't have a, a, um, a very fine, you know, like textbook ready characterization mm -hmm. of, of how that occurs. But we do uh, have some lines of evidence which are really promising. Um, so I, I feel like I'm, I'm taking this from you, Matt, but I can pass it off to you if you, if you want to add anything. Uh, we know uh, that the, um, the uh, periodical cicadas are producing an amphetamine. It's called cathinone. And we know that amphetamines can affect our behavior, and we know that it can affect the behavior of other insects, either making them more aggressive or, or changing uh, when and, and how often they do behaviors. So we anticipate that the production of that compound, which we find in cicadas, which are infected with this canidial infection, uh, is, is probably gonna manipulate their behavior. And in annual cicadas, uh, we found that it was producing a hallucinogenic uh, compound, which is called psilocybin. So that's the magic mushroom compound. So uh, not only are these cicadas doing the bidding of the fungus, but they're probably drugged out of their minds as well. <laughs> Whoa. Put it scientifically. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that, that's, I don't know if awesome is the right word. That is crazy. Yeah. 
And now you said that, so there's some cicadas that do the long cycle, then you said annual. So are there some that come up more frequently? So yeah. the annual cicadas, oh, go ahead, Matt. So there's both annual cicadas and periodical cicadas. Now, this time of year, you, you're probably actually um, hearing the annual cicadas in your backyard. Um, the dog day cicadas, these green ones that make the loud mm -hmm. buzzing sound in late summer, um, the dog days of summer, those are, um, those are annual cicadas. Now, despite the name annual cicada, it doesn't take one year to develop from egg to adult. It takes several years, uh, somewhere between two and five years. But some of the population emerges each year so that you see the cicadas every year. Um, but, you know, in, in reality, it takes several years for an individual to develop underground before emerging and, and you know, being adults. So um, those annual cicadas occur all over the U.S. and, and elsewhere. Um, actually, cicadas are, are quite uh, present and prolific in, in the tropical regions of the world. Uh, but we have a, a fair number of annual cicadas here, including those dog day cicadas that I was mentioning just a moment ago. Um, so you'll get annual cicadas that are susceptible to mesospora species, but it's not the same fungus that infects the periodical cicadas. It's just like a, a close cousin or a close sibling. Oh, wow. So they're like specialized, specialized. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It, 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 that just amazes me that something could be that specialized and survive, especially since you're talking 13 to 17 years before we see those cicadas the next generation coming back. It, it just amazes me that, so will those spores stay alive that long, resting spores stay alive that long waiting for them? Yeah, you, you actually, that was a really interesting question point you brought up about, you know, the fact that they have such a specialized lifestyle, yet they still persist in the environment. And, you know, you think about the evolutionary history of these things. One thing that we've noticed in, in studying this um, real interesting interaction is that it doesn't appear that the cicadas are killed faster or, or the cicadas that are infected die faster than healthy individuals. So the fungus has kind of found that Goldilocks zone where it's not killing them faster. It's just manipulating their behavior to maximize dispersal. Um, and ensure that it's going to infect as many cicadas in a given generation as possible so that 17 years later, um, they could infect a new cohort. Now I'm going to let Brian take over and talk about kind of the, the persistence of these spores and some alternative hypotheses we have about mm. what these spores are doing. Yeah, so they're called rusting spores. Um, this, this is a, to a mycologist, uh, it's a very specific term, uh, which means that the spores are sort of uh, tailor-made to survive a really long time. Uh, so they can rest uh, in the soil or, or wherever they're resting uh, for some time. Uh, and, and one of the things that has allowed this, because you're right, it's, it's kind of weird to, to have a host that only shows up every 17 years and, and be highly specialized. And, and one of the things that we think is, is driving this is uh, what Matt mentioned earlier, which is that when cicadas do emerge, they emerge in the billions. So it's, it's boom or bust for this fungus. So when there are cicadas, then they have so many cicadas to choose from that they can create um, what we call an epizootic. Um, and an epizootic is just an epidemic in insects. Um, and, and when that occurs, then the, then the fungus can infect a large number of the cicadas, but not all of them because there are so many cicadas. And then the fungus and the cicada, they both get to 
uh, try again the next generation. Um, and this is no mistake by the cicadas. And if you've ever encountered a cicada and you're not afraid of them, uh, they're really docile. They don't really have any defenses. They're not skittish like a lot of insects. When we go collect them, you can literally just pick them up and look at them and set them back down. Um, and the reason why is because they don't need that behavior because there are so many of them that birds in the area could eat as many cicadas as they want and they'll never eat all the cicadas. Um, so, so this aspect of the cicada lifestyle has really facilitated uh, this outbreak of this uh, zombie lifestyle. And we see a lot of other zombie, uh, zombie fungi are also in insects that occur in large numbers and have these sort of boom bust populations. So you'll see it in flies, which will have really large numbers and then sort of die back. And um, there are also zombie fungi, which infect ants, which will have entire colonies that they can infect. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting lifestyle. And because of that fine specialization, it's, you have to understand the natural history of the host to really understand what's going on with the fungi. Some of the uh, questions that we still have is, it's, it's sort of assumed, and it, it may be true, that when the cicada emerges, that's when the infection occurs. But certainly mm -hmm. it's possible that when the baby cicadas fall from the eggs to the ground and then crawl underground, that that's when they're infected. And that the cicada has sort of lives with, or the fungus lives within the cicada as it's developing and only produces that mushroom that we can recognize above ground. Um, so there are a lot of open questions about when and, and how these are being passed around. Um, and, and there are some things that we know for sure, like the manipulation of the mating behavior. And there are other things that we would really like to know, but we have to wait until next year when the cicadas emerge to uh, try to uh, catch them in action. Another thing that's worth pointing out here is that, you know, it was luck that cicadas came across our doorstep in 2016 and we were able to study this, this interaction. Um, Certainly, it's the easiest one to find if you're in an area where there's an emergence of periodical cicadas. The other highly specialized um, pathogens, with maybe the exception of the one that infects like flies, are really difficult to find. And you see us desperately searching iNaturalist and these other community um, science platforms for people posting pictures of infected in insects so that we can then direct message them and be like, can you collect that for us? Because we've only ever seen one in nature and we really need to need that specimen. Oh, uh, I, I do, I do want to emphasize that finding a specific one is hard, but finding zombie fungi is probably not. And everywhere that I've lived and have looked for them, I've been able to find other zombie flies or some sort of, of zombie fungus. And, and just yesterday I walked out my front door and there was one hanging off of a fern. So, you know, once you once you know to look for them, they're actually quite quite common, and it's a successful lifestyle. Um, but that they're successful in that specific host, or they're successful for that specific fungus. So, uh, we because we're we're trying to look at the system scientifically, we want to find specific ones, and to do that, we either have to, like you said, scour iNaturalists, or um, we're we're really loud and nerdy on social media about ones that we like and are interested in, and. Um, it's a good way to uh, to find those specimens, and and we we have specimens that are in the mail right now that people have found because we were obnoxious about it online. So, yeah, um, and, and I'll, I'll add there that you know, um, although we certainly get some some really high quality samples from people through social media, um, 
more often than not, you know, someone will collect something um, that, that they don't study these things and the sample is just compromised. So it's hard, it's hard to use some samples, but we, we still try to encourage enthusiasm for these interactions. Um, but sometimes we have to follow up with an actual uh, field visit to these sites. To say, mm -hmm. okay, you saw this here last year, let's look for it again this year. What are some applications? Are there from from these studies anything we could learn about um, how like what humans could be infected with? Are there any crossover into the human realm, or is this something? Animals in general, even. Brian, uh, so these these fungi because they're so highly specialized, and also because they uh, create this kind of disfigurement. If there were fungi like this that were infecting us we would know and also we would take care of it pretty quickly you know we're not gonna we're not gonna let a fungus make our butt fall off or, or anything like that um but by by studying how they evolve these really interesting abilities and by studying the relationship that they have with their insect hosts we can understand better um how uh how how those processes occur and we can find broad principles that we could then apply to say human pathogens so there are certainly uh, a lot of fungi which are of concern uh, for, for us. Um, there are drug-resistant fungi and, and there are fungi which, which will infect people in hospitals. And those aren't, those aren't necessarily going through this really complex lifestyle, but certainly the more we understand the system, the better prepared we are to, um, to intervene with pathogens of us or pathogens of other animals. So it's, it's a much broader sort of application, um, but, you know, as I mentioned, uh, because fungi are, are doing so much and are producing these interesting compounds, um, it very well could be that as we're investigating these different strains, we find uh, a, a chemical which would be useful in an, in an applied context. Um, so there's a really good um, example of this, which is called cyclosporin. Um, and cyclosporin is a drug which we use to um, dampen the immune system so that we can do organ transplants. Um, without cyclosporin, um, before cyclosporin, uh, when an organ transplant was, when the surgery was done, your body would attack that organ and be like, this isn't mine, and it would break it down. And uh, cyclosporin allows our bodies to sort of take that um, organ transplant. And this drug is from an insect pathogen and it used that compound cyclosporin to dampen the insect immune system and allow itself to infect the insect. So by studying these things, even though it seems like, why would you care about an insect pathogen? It can have really broad implications on, on our immunity and, and on our understanding of human biology as well. So, you know, stay tuned. Yeah, and, and another thing I'd like to add there is that, you know, although we found these interesting alkaloids that are, are known from plants or known from magic mushrooms, they're just two of over a thousand compounds that we found from these fungal plugs. So in a sense, these interactions that are happening in our own backyards could serve as the next frontier for drug discovery. You know, for the longest time, um, the pharmaceutical industry and um, we're big about bioprospecting. Go, go somewhere exotic, look in plants and find some kind of drug we can use and make money off. Yeah. Um, but as it turns out, there's a lot of interesting biology and a lot of interesting chemical ecology happening in our own backyards. And I think, you know, everyone wants a, a good travel and find something interesting story. 
but I think it's it's more interesting that when you take a closer look at what's happening right outside your door, you know, there's all this potential there. Um, and that's kind of what we're seeing with the cicada fungus interactions. Oh, see, is that that's that that's what I think is so cool. Yeah. I mean, you're figuring out the chemicals excreted through this and then what those do to it and then seeing if that will then do to something else like us to yeah. for, in a beneficial way. That's what just amazes me. Well, one of the other interesting things that came out, and this was unexpected, just like the discovery, is that, you know, in, in discovering these compounds present in these plugs, we were sitting in a very interesting uh, situation where we're like, oh, God, these are regulated by the Drug Enforcement Administration. Um, and we realized that these were both, you know, classified as Schedule One drugs, right. both cathinone and psilocybin. So you're not allowed to really work with them in a lab setting unless you have a DEA permit. So uh, we, we first encountered this when we were trying to get some analytical standards. These are basically like purified versions of the compounds to, to compare against our cicadas to say, is the compound we found truly what we think it is? So you compare it to the standard. And when we went to buy the standards, you know, you get this pop-up screen that says, please enter your DEA um, <laughs> permit number. And we're like, Oh my God, like we don't have a DEA permit. Like we can't be studying these things. So I wrote the most awkward email in my life to the DEA and um, kind of self-reported our discovery saying this was inadvertent. You know, we weren't, you know, we weren't trying to uh, increase production. We were just trying to observe what was happening. And um, they eventually came back with a letter, but you know, the email response was, this is an interesting discovery. I'll have to consult with the chief chemist at the DEA to find out if you guys are uh, on the hook. <laughs> so I was, uh, you know, biting my nails for a while there, uh, but we came back and it was, it was fine, but it was still, it was really nerve wracking because, you know, we make this really cool discovery only to be met with the reality that these are illicit um, substances. And, and the reason, one of the other reasons I'm bringing this up is, you know, the next, natural progression in, in the research would be to dose cicadas with these compounds to see if they have a similar behavioral modification. But we can't do that unless we have the permits because you can't just have psilocybin or just have cathinone in the lab to, to dose things with. Um, now, you need it, special permits to do that. Now, it should be said that the amount of these drugs that are being produced in the cicada is the cicada amount it's it's a it's a very small amount it's going to affect a cicada but if right. you were uh had any any bright ideas to eat cicadas to, to try to get cicadas. these compounds that, you have to eat up. hundreds of cicadas so uh, we don't recommend <laughs> yeah, it don't eat a it's cicada. not the only yeah. it's not the only compound that we found and there are a lot of compounds you definitely don't want to eat so uh good it, it's interesting for cicadas and it's it's uh it's definitely going to manipulate them but it's it's not going to be worth uh anything for you Unless you're doing science on it. I wasn't even thinking as big as a person, but I mean, that's a good point. I'm so glad you brought that up. I was just thinking, okay, so are birds eating cicadas and getting high? So are they looking for fungus involved? You, you know, things growing on cicadas? And But uh, I didn't think about people. Yeah. Well, actually, it's a really good question. And in fact, you know, when you have these larger epizootics where you have basically a high incidence of infections in a given area. In 2019, we had another brood emerge in the um, southwestern Pennsylvania area, just north here of Morgantown. And we were studying uh, a kind of a, an epicenter there. 
And the incidence of infections was well above 20%. And, and certainly birds were consuming them. So it'd be interesting to set up a kind of a, a long-term study over the, the course of the, the, where if you offered a bird an infected one or an uninfected one, what would be their choice? And, and how would they respond once they consumed it? Yeah. We, we do see when we're collecting the cicadas that a, uh, a fair few have their abdomen missing because of bird attacks. Um, so you, you never know. But again, you know, if we want to know if a bird is acting strange, we're going to need somebody who knows how birds behave in the first place to be able to point that out. So uh, it, it could be an interesting question. Uh, we, we just never know. Be entertaining at least. <laughs> yeah. Well, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you guys about that. How I mean, this is very exciting research. I thank you for listening to our podcast. Please hit the subscribe button so you'll continue to hear about new and exciting STEM-related work being done. Tweet us questions, suggestions, and requests at Purdue SOS, or email us at k12science at purdue.edu. Until next time, be super, and remember, you are someone's hero. Boiler up, hammer down.